Welcome to the Night Parlor. Welcome back to the Night Parlor. I'm your host, Joshua Rex. Tonight's guest is Daniel Brom. Daniel is the author of the short story collections, The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales, The Wish Mechanics, Stories of the Strange and Fantastic, Yeti, Tiger, Dragon, and Underworld Dreams. The Serpent's Shadow, his first novella, was released from Cemetery Dance eBooks. He is the editor of the Spirits Unwrapped Anthology from Leafy Press and the host and founder of the Nighttime Logic Reading Series in New York City, which can also be heard on the Ink Heist podcast. His work has appeared in publications ranging from Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet to the Shivers 8 Anthology. He can be found at bloodandstardust.wordpress.com and on Twitter at Daniel Brom. Daniel, it's a pleasure welcoming you to the Night Parlor. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd like to start by finding out a little more about you. Uh, tell me about yourself, your education background and working life, uh, your writing, and how you got interested in weird fiction. Well, quite uh, quite a packed quite a packed one right there. I'll, I'll take a bite at the um, the weird fiction. I guess because I came at I came at weird fiction kind of uh, tangentially. Uh, I can't even pronounce it. That's one of my powers is to not be able to pronounce things, <laughs> but um, <laughs> right. A real skillful, a real, a real skill to have as people, someone who podcasts as well. Sure. Um, you know, I started, I started writing, I got serious about writing um, maybe about 20 or 25 years ago. I had a background. Um, I was coming from the creative side of uh, comic books and and music were my first dabs into um, sharing creativity with the world like that. And at the time, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know much at all about the amazing world of just the history of of, of genre fiction and the current, you know, silver golden age that we're in right now. Um, so I thought I thought I was writing science fiction. Maybe I wanted to write science fiction. I didn't know what I wanted to write. I just was of the school of, hey, you know, um, fiction, anything that's not nonfiction or truth is fiction, you know, uh, like was growing up as a kid in my library is just the books with either the rocket ship, the skull or the pirate on it. So, um, you know, after attending um, so my education, um, consisted of, I went to uh, a workshop called the Clarion Writers Workshop in 2002. And that was a real gateway for me to learn, to learn just about writing and the craft, which is something I had never done before, but also was my gateway into just the, the world of fiction that's out there. Um, I came, I came at Weird Fiction, you know, fast forward a couple of years when I started writing and started publishing. Um, you know, I didn't really feel my writing was uh, quite square inside any of the boxes. Maybe I was too 
too something or the other for the fantasy people, or maybe too horror for the sci-fi people, maybe too sci-fi for the horror people. Um, but I did find I did find uh, a home, so to so to speak, um, uh, with Cemetery Dance Magazine, and the editors and staff there, um, you know, decided, hey, you're you're writing this horror, and and you know, we want. Um, yeah, we want to publish you. And I started getting published in that magazine. And then fast forwarding it another couple of years later, I still um, didn't quite know. I didn't quite think my my writing was a, a square fit with the horror. And there's a, I always come back to this one moment where I was at a, a convention, I believe it was a world fantasy convention. And there was a panel on uh, the author, Robert Aikman. And one of, one of the panelists was the great uh, Peter Straub. And I, I didn't know, you know, I'm sort of, so I'm sort of embarrassed to say like, you know, I didn't, I feel like I write weird fiction and I write strange tales and I write in, in, in the lineage of these authors, but really only until very recently knew, knew, uh, I, I'm hesitant to say knew what I was doing because I don't know what I'm doing, but you know, knew, knew, of, <laughs> knew of these lineages. So it was just a, a very specific moment where Peter Straub asked the audience, he said, if you haven't read Robert Aikman, just go read the short story, The Swords, go into the dealer's room, go buy a copy of the book, go read it, and welcome to your life being changed. And, you know, that's that's what strange tales are, and that's what weird fiction is. And, you know, I, I, I accepted the challenge. I went and I did it. And, and sure enough, rarely, rarely do these moments ever live up to their promise. But I did read The Swords by Robert Aikman. And after listening to Peter Straub talk about it, things clicked for me. I understood... Um, I understood what he was talking about. I understood of that genre, that subgenre. But most importantly for me, I felt, wow, these things that I want to do, these things that I'm doing, are okay, and they they have a they have a point and they have a place. And it was a big a big moment for me. So that was quite put a, quite a lot of words in there. Hope uh, hope I wasn't too wordy. No, no, that's a that's a great explanation. And actually, I was going to go off that uh, because I read in one of your bios that. I really like this. I have to premise by saying that uh, you don't consider your fiction to necessarily be, you know, quote, weird or horror or anything uh, first that you consider it fiction. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And I agree with that because I think as time goes on, you know, it, it's sort of like how you look at history. You know, as I say, I can't remember the historian that said it, but that history is a story about the past. Uh, you know, even things we work off of primary documents you're still creating a story, uh, be it with some facts, however, with fiction, you know, and be, whether it be literary fiction, horror fiction, whatever, it's all fiction. And I think that that delineation can sometimes harm things. Uh, I, I don't know, what do you think about that? <laughs> I think that I love to think about it. <laughs> I do love, I love to think about it. I, like that being said, I'm like, oh, I'm just fiction. Oh, I hate categories. But on the other hand, like I love genre and I love the categories and I love thinking about it. Is it, uh, so I, I'm, I'm sort of both ways. I see how it, on the one hand, I see how it's incredibly necessary. Like this is in, in the business side and the marketing side and just the communication between humans side. On the other hand, yeah, I think I think it, it I could see how it can can trip people up. Um, you know, when you're alone at, at your keyboard, and if it's making voices in your head or new, or if it's acting, uh, if it's acting as any sort of constraint, I can I can see that. Um, you know, so um, 
I guess like my writer self, um, since I, you know, grew up or grew up as a writer without knowing all that stuff, I like to sort of preach the importance of, um, yeah, either not letting it, not letting it be a restriction or like me, once I learned about it, it served, it served to be a freeing or confidence building thing. And then on the flip side of that, as just, just a reader and as a hard nerd and as a fan, you know, I just take great, great joy in, be, in, in learning about it and playing with it and, and, and thinking about it. And um, <laughs> so you know, my thoughts are all over the place on it. Yeah, I suppose as they should be. Uh, it, it's an interesting topic. Uh, there are a lot of different theories you can go off with it. Um, then I want to go off what you were just talking about also with uh, books and authors. Uh, my next question was, you know, what, what are books and authors that you would consider to be central influences on your writing and, and your own unique voice? Uh, it sounds like Aikman is one. Uh, I'd like to ask you, you know, what are some others? And also, has your taste in horror or genre fiction changed significantly over the years? Yeah, I think, I definitely think it's changed. Um, I can't, uh, I can't, can't, I, I, when, when asked this question, I have to say that the two writers um, that really started it for me were Tanith Lee and Lucia Shepard. Um, this is maybe, you know, back when I was a teenager, I, um, in my local library, as a teenager does, just going going to the shelves, and I pulled uh, a copy of Dreams of Dark and Light by Tanith Lee, and um, the the Jaguar Hunter by Lucia Shepard, just off the library's shelves, not knowing anything about it other than they looked like they were attractive books, attractive covers, and those are the sort of books that did it for me. What what, what Tanith Lee did for me is that was sort of like anything, anything goes and anything she taught to me and brought to me, I didn't realize I was getting this lesson in me as I was reading it, but in Tanith Lee's stories, anything goes and often within the same story. You know, is it fantasy? Is it science fiction? Is it horror? You know, are there ghosts and monsters happening? Is it in space? Are there swords? Are people uh, changing genre, changing gender, changing this? So Tanith Lee just, you know, really, um, I think she's a really unhinged writer and I think that was just a great great thing um, to just start as a baseline with and Lucia Shepard brought to me um, just such beautiful beautiful prose and the real real heartfelt stories and his hallmark of setting setting and setting a lot of Lucia Shepard's stories are set in Central America, which was a place I hadn't yet been or a place that I, I traveled to um, around that age. So those are two, two things that just really started me off. I came to other authors later on, such as Aikman and Kelly Link, but, but those two are, are the baseline. And of course, um, uh, a, healthy dose, a healthy dose of Stephen King and Clive Barker around that time. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose we all have a healthy dose of those guys somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I can see a little reflection of the international approach in, in this collection, uh, 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 Underworld Dreams in particular. Uh, I mean, you're, you're in the Yucatan, you're in Australia, you're in America, you're, you're moving around. Uh, I've enjoyed that perspective. And, and it reminds me, Alison Littlewood also tends to write a little more globally. She's definitely 
can be very regional in Yorkshire and her work is influenced by there, but there, there is sort of a global approach. There's, there are themes of water in it, which, uh, uh, which I think is really important for a writer to do, to, to look at a completely different setting than maybe you're used to even considering. Uh, you just never know what's gonna pop out of that for you and expand you. Oh yeah, I mean, um, I mean, for me, those um, those settings were just where um, what what was calling me. Um, so um, in, in some ways, they didn't um, they didn't seem to be um, other ones that I pushed for. But yeah, I, I do I, I do like that as well. Of, of no matter where no matter where your baseline is, um, yeah, one of those one of the great things we can do as authors is um, yeah, as, as, as push push ourselves uh, to write outside of our own hallmarks, you know, just just for the fun of it or the the challenge of it, and you know, I think there are a lot of other rewards as well that come with that. Yeah. You you mentioned your work as a a weaving of quantum intelligence. I, I found that phrase intriguing. Um, how do you define quantum intelligence, and how does it apply to your fiction? Wow. Um, I have to admit that I, I think that was from a bio that one of my editors um, wrote <laughs> wrote for the Night Marchers. So uh, um, I don't want to put you on the spot there. Though. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, if you give me um, if you give me a working definition of quantum intelligence, I'll take a bite at it. But I I really don't know. It sounds cool. <laughs> well, I, I sort of interpreted it as several micro aspects of things that sort of permeate you and then coalesce together in a way that we you know for instance with the title Underworld Dreams I thought that's that's a that's an interesting concept especially with that notion that maybe these things are are sort of approaching you or, or occurring or coalescing in these liminal states uh in your subconscious that then tend to maybe uh come up from the underworld as it were or something uh I, I don't know that that was my interpretation of quantum intelligence. I, I really like the phrase. Yeah, that's and that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful, wonderful definition of it. Whether whether it's, you know, whether it's in the the Webster book or not, I, I think that's wonderful. Uh, I think that's a great um, a great way of voicing the kind of fiction that we write and that I'm and that I'm after as well. Um, so yeah, especially that you 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 hit on the word liminal there and liminal, micro, uh, di and different different things, uh, different different aspects coming together to be um, perhaps more than meets the eye. So um, all all of those uh, really resonate with me. Hmm. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about your collection, Underworld Dreams, uh, which came out last September, uh, Lethe Press. Uh, in your introduction. You speak of a tradition of stories written with controlled ambiguities, another great phrase. Um, you, you definitely value ambiguity in your work, uh, more like the supernatural as a catalyst, I, I think I recall you writing. Yeah. Uh, would you explain what you mean by that and talk about some of the other authors, I guess, who, who work in this tradition? And do you happen to have any favorites among them? I guess it could be, this could be a question more specifically towards your work and, and then the second part with the authors and the tradition and favorites could be sort of an addendum to it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess maybe I will take it backwards though, because um, as I was saying about Aikman, um, 
I guess that is, um, maybe that's the way that I would, I would describe Aikman or, or describe what reading Aikman um, empowered me or gave me the confidence to maybe sort of have a name or a place about what I was doing. Um, so the controlled ambiguity part, and, and I think, I think controlled is, is, perha is perhaps the important uh, qualifier there. One of the things I was doing was I just liked, um, yeah, I liked stories that made you think. Like I liked stories that could be a grounds for discussion. Like, oh, did, did you see this or did you see that? And I love stories where there was no right answer, where it's like, oh, it definitely, it definitely was a spaceship. Oh, no, 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 no. It definitely, it definitely was an illusion of light. And I love it. I love stories like that where um, that is just the jumping off point for so much more. And you know that was just kind of what I was after as as a reader. And you know I never was sure if that was okay. You know I had a voice in my head like, is that even okay to do? Is that okay to write? Um, so um, again, back to that moment I was talking about in your first question when Peter Stroud pointed out the swords. Um, have you have you read the read the swords? I have not, no. Oh, okay. So I'll I'll keep it spoiler free and I'll keep it spoiler free for the audience. But you know, there is something strange that happens in that story. A character has an unexplained encounter, an unexplained series of encounters, and it is never, ever explained, hinted to, leaning left, leaning right to the reader. So it, it is simply presented at face value. And what I found um, when you do that in fiction, it, it acts as um, that catalyst. It acts for that catalyst uh, for the story. So when the story is no longer about, I have encountered a vampire. The story is about, I must get the silver bullets. I must get the cross. I must get the magic item or the item to defeat this monster. The story ceased to be about defeating or battling or whatever it would be with the supernatural. And the supernatural becomes, uh, you know, becomes uh, the catalyst for the human conflicts, for the, um, the human elements um, in the story. I, and I, I found that to be present in, in your story, the, the Unfinished Room. I, I found like at least that, that, uh, that definition on it, when I read The Unfinished Room, I was like, oh, oh yeah, you, you, you know what that is, you know, whether, whether you know it, uh, you've internalized it or whether, you know, you, you think about it intellectually, um, you know, it, it's just that sort of thing that's happening in, in your story as well, Joshua. Right, it's something that's not necessarily defined. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a really good correlation with what you just described with uh, Nathan Bellingrud's A Wild Acre, where at essentially at the beginning of the story, there's a werewolf attack on these men. Mm. And the rest of the story is sort of a, how should you say, uh, it's, it's watching how these characters are watching how the protagonist reacts to what happened after that mm. werewolf attack. And it, it, it's an illustration of his character, you know, turned inside out. And now, now you're, you're not focused necessarily on the werewolf. Now you're focused on this man and his reactions. Uh, and, you know, same thing, I'm not going to ruin it for anybody that hasn't read it, but uh, the, the uh, denouement is, is certainly not what you'd expect. 
uh, and and some people may feel well, it, you know, that left me hanging with something. But uh, yeah. I found it to be extraordinarily powerful and the perfect ending for a story like that. And stories like that always ring somehow to me about with real life. They they seem to somehow ironically magnify real life by throwing in a supernatural element. And I'm not mm. sure if that. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's too obtuse, but I think not at it, all. Not at all. It leads you back to you. You know, it leads you back to humanity and our reactions and our emotions and how we how we react to things. Yeah, and I guess that's what I mean to answer your question. What I mean is having the supernatural be the catalyst. Look, look, I love all the other kind of horror stories and supernatural stories. You know, where it's about the scare, it's about the horror or the wonder of the werewolf or the ghost or if it's just good good fun as well. I love all that stuff. The stories that really get me excited are like the ones that you just said. I haven't read. I love uh, Nathan Bellinger's work. I haven't read that one, but yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm interested in reading that. Um, yeah, much, so much more if you're like, oh, it's a great werewolf story. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's great. I, I dig werewolf stories. I dig great werewolf stories. Yeah, <laughs> but if you're telling me that, yeah, that's the, it's that's just the you know the incitement or the catalyst for yeah to be about the human experience but with the supernatural yeah yeah it's that's, sign me up <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's the impetus for the rest of the story and you know oddly sometimes i don't know if you find this but with stories like that it almost makes the supernatural element seem more real maybe because mm. it's the way the author introduces it in that way where it's brief and it's not challenged because it's not questioned then really throughout the story uh, or, you know, I mean, maybe that combined with the, the richness of, of how that character or that uh, that supernatural element is defined. Uh, it's somehow strangely eerily can make it seem like, oh, there really are werewolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, the presentation of, uh, I guess that's where, where the craft of writing comes in, at least to this reader, you know, um, yeah, how, it, how it's presented with the verisimilitude, I think is a big, big element of making it work. I mean, one of, one of the things that, that Peter Stroud was talking about, I'm sorry to keep going back to that moment, but you know, it's now placed in my mind when I remember he was talking about Aikman and it was something that you said, oh yeah, sometimes people feel like they're left hanging or you know, for this kind of fiction, maybe it just, people just never suspend disbelief or they, they're not satisfied with it. And you know, I think in, Aik, uh, in Aikman's work, there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of leaps to get over or possibly one big leap in each story. But um, what Stroud pointed out to that in that panel was it was just the steadiness of the voice, Aikman's voice and either the working class or just the voice, uh, the grounded voice of the narrators that, that made everything else work. And, you know, when things were bonkers or unexplained, uh, you either were with it or you weren't, you know, and for those of us who were with it, you know, like, um, it, it just seems as real as can be. Sure. Yeah, and actually, I'd like to ask you about uh, one of your stories that that utilizes this method for sure. Uh, how to stay afloat uh, when drowning, uh, which was in Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12, uh, and it's also part of your Underworld Dreams. Uh, the first person present tense narration along with the, the rich detail I was kind of talking about a little bit before, uh, makes the reader, made me feel like, you know, he's following the protagonist as he actively walks through his own memories and terror. Uh, there are some really great lines here that, that I'd like to quote. Uh, here are a couple. Uh, People don't get it. 
They don't understand the only thing that's real is how we treat each other. Nothing we do is going to be remembered. And the other line is, I used to believe there would always be good places left to run to. Now I'm not so sure. Determining if there are any good places left to come back to seems more important. Now, the notion of safety to me, uh, for not only one's physical being, but their conception of the world as a happy one is a poignant and really violently illustrated theme in this story that I found exquisite. Uh, another line I thought that, that married these two notions really well uh, was, everyone knows the real way to chum for sharks is to cut yourself from nape to navel and let your guts spill out. I thought this was a wonderful meditation on the reality that there really is no safety in life and, and how we seek to entrust or cachet ourselves into others in the hope of finding solace or consolation, I guess you could say, for our own mortalities. Well, what are your thoughts on all that, Damien? Well, um, first of all, thank you for just the kind analysis of that. I really, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, that's uh, it's it's uh, coincidental that that you zeroed in on that uh, that one section because that was I'm going to do a little reading uh, as. Um, for uh, for the podcast uh, after we're done with our questions, and that the small selection that I picked for tonight encompasses uh, two of those two of those lines in there. So uh, yeah, I'm still sort of like, wow, he, he picked. We're thinking the same tonight. As uh, <laughs> <laughs> first, the first thought, um, yeah. The, so um, yeah, those are two. Um, yeah, I guess the the, the first. Um, the first two were the human elements that I wanted to bring, that I wanted to bring out, you know, that I wanted to make sure that these characters felt as real as can be, that said in saying something specific to them, say something universal about all of us. And those were, um, those were two things that I felt were real um, to the characters while I wasn't, um, well, I wasn't thinking uh, initially or um, about as I'm being about safety, but it, it makes perfect sense to see that, to see it analyzed that way. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about maybe, um, what was the first quote? Uh, that was that people don't get it. They don't understand ah. the only real thing that's, or the only thing that's real, I'm sorry, is how we treat each other. Nothing we do is going to be remembered. Yeah, I mean, that's something that, a notion that I, be, I, I believe, you know, the, these stories aren't personal about me, but that is something that I wanted to infuse as something real about us in there. And as a source, as a source of the sadness of the character who says that and um, the choices she eventually makes, which will become clear in, in the reading here. And, and then the second quote was that the running, um, less about running away and more about coming back. Was that... Yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the the last line is determining if there are any good places left to come back to seems more important than places left to run. And yeah, maybe and that maybe that's maybe a more mature another much more quote unquote mature or time tested 
um, thought, you know, about, uh, I don't know, about the world. I mean, I, I do believe that this world is a, um, it's a beautiful place and there are so many amazing places um, in there. And to have a character, a lot of the, the stuff that I read, a lot of the Lucia Shepard or a lot of some of my early work are characters perhaps running away or perhaps hiding. And perhaps that thought is one of a tempered about, well, despite all the far flung locations, there are stories more about, um, there are stories about home, you know, uh, and maybe, maybe I was viewing it through the lens of these characters, um, the stories about home. I'm, I'm stuttering because it wasn't, uh, it was, wasn't something like intentional in there. And then the last one, the part, um, that was uh, the cut, cutting yourself from nape to navel. Um, yeah, that was something I was looking for. Uh, it, is, it is a story uh, where sharks are in this story. And I, I was working on it on a literal level at first because at first I just wanted to have the character say something where, um, uh, where people that might sort of work literally and figuratively you know, and, and to sort of just create, have this character saying, saying hearing something and then saying, repeating it another point in the story, that's something that will make the reader uneasy or uneasy, um, not because we think he's gonna cut someone, but like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> is he talking metaphorically here or is he, are, they, are they talking literally here? And that happens to him in the very, it's sort of, it was just sort of a device um, where I played with in the story. This story opens up with him having a conversation where uh, at a bar with an attractive woman and he's like, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, I get it. You're joking, right? <laughs> and then the, by, the, by the time the story progresses and after everything that happens, the story pretty much closes with him saying that to someone else. And uh, I don't know. It's, I think it was my attempt at horror. <laughs> I say attempt is that um, you said something wonderful about it, you know, and uh, that I'm like, I, I should have just said, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> I, meant, I, I meant that immediately. I'm so glad you picked up on it. <laughs> well, I mean, this is what's great about the the mode in which you're working or this supernatural as a catalyst or, or controlled ambiguity as it were is that you're enabling these different kinds of interpretations and it, it you know not to use the word rich again but it really does lead to a, a richer text uh, ultimately and I think it's fun to be able to, to play these things back and forth and, and I find what I love is when I speak with somebody about my own fiction where someone is extrapolating something completely outside of what I thought, uh, that's the real power of all this, Yeah, I suppose, in the end, is that it's, it's, it's hitting them in a certain way, and then you can have a discussion about it, and then you can have a discussion about broader themes within it, so, uh, I mean, your work definitely does that for me, and uh, yeah, this story in particular, uh, I thought, I thought those themes were, uh, like I said, extremely poignant, and, you know, th there's also the contrast of, of sharpness, of violence, of sharks, with this real softness of not only the the, the human body as, as 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 an object, but uh, all of these soft things within our minds that, like I said, we're trying to preserve or trying to maybe cash in deals. Mm. At least that was that was my feeling I got. Well, yeah, thank you, thank you for saying that, and and yeah, I do, I do agree with you. I mean, um, I, I I'll feel like a story um, is successful. Um, on an artistic level yeah maybe, maybe it is cliche to say but as you say like yeah when yeah when things 
when things are be, you be or yeah, they'll be able to uh, bring out things in people. They're able to see people are able to see something authentic in there that um, yeah may or may not have been intended or um, yeah. If, I think if the author is working from from an authentic place and putting you know honest situations and honest emotions in there, that, that it will um, it will inspire the same in reader. So um, yeah, and it's um, I wish I could say exactly how to do it. We all know how to write our own stories, but it is. Um, it is a huge compliment and it is gratifying to hear if a story um, does do that for someone because you know uh, look when we write in these modes sometimes it just doesn't catch fire for people or um, I've had the experience where you know most of the time I'd say yeah okay with the the unintended reaction is, is a wonderful thing except I've had some times where it's like the exact opposite reaction I had a, one, of, one of the stories in Underworld Dreams where I did read from it and expected it to be chilling or horrifying and I got laughter <laughs> and not, not like laughter as in like you know you you suck but as in like this is hysterical I'm like oh okay yeah write humor yeah I mean writing humor is incredibly hard as well I'm like uh and often <laughs> well maybe not often but sometimes we get the unintended humor <laughs> yeah absolutely it reminds me of uh this performance I saw of, uh, I don't know if you remember that band from the 90s, Eels. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the lead singer, E, wrote this album essentially about his sister dying of cancer. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, the whole album is you know, themed around that, so it's a very powerful album, but uh, there's a yeah. song called It's a Motherfucker, and and I mean, it, he leads off with that line, and then he gets into how hard it is to, to have lost his sister, but it was, it was interesting because Eve Perry from Journey. I saw this. This is how you get, you know, on these YouTube. <laughs> use YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Somehow I, I, saw, I found this video of, of Steve Perry singing that. And he sings really? it live. He comes out as a guest, you know, guest singer, whatever. And he comes out and he starts singing it. And the crowds is just hilarious. And I thought, well, there are two things going on here. One, it's generational. They don't know the song. And I mean, this came out, uh, you know, probably 15 years ago. The song itself came out a yeah. lot sooner before. But, um, uh, and the other thing is, you know, you probably think he's just joking around because they don't know the, the lyrics. So yeah, it, it reminds me of what you're talking about, where it's just odd. It must have been really odd for him to hear laughter. And, and you know, maybe years at other concerts because like, people are familiar with the song. But yeah, it's ironic how those things can happen. Yeah, it happens a lot. In, happens a lot in music. Yeah, where there are. Yeah, you don't you don't. And usually it is that way. You don't quite get the darkness of that song um, maybe because the music is doing something different for us. But I'm a huge music uh, nerd or I, I just love the music, um, things like that, especially especially like music feuds. So like I know when I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to search that up on YouTube and and, and f go down that Steve Perry rabbit hole to see. <laughs> now, like I sort of I maybe I sort of remember that performance, but I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> When Steve Perry was gone, like, wow, he surfaced with the eels at one point. I got to check that out. Yeah, it was a totally <laughs> bizarre thing to, to see. It <laughs> yeah, a weird place to see him with. But um, I said, you got to love that about YouTube. But, um, you know, there's yeah. one more thing I wanted to add real quick, Daniel, and then I'll let you read. I don't want to ramble on here while, uh, while we have your great work here to come. Uh, but one thing I wanted to say in, in closing about this, this topic we're talking about is that I used to sort of be more in the camp where I didn't necessarily understand the controlled ambiguity thing. I sort of liked it to get more to the point or I liked there to be some sort of, uh, you know, rounded ending to it. But what I found really interesting, the more stories I read with this going on with this theme, and I have read to make I haven't read the story of sorts, but I have read to make and, and I enjoy what I'm about to say here for the same reason of, of his work is that what's really eerie 
about them to me is that when you're reading a story, like for instance, How to Stay Afloat When Drowning, there's all this stuff that's happening on some sort of subconscious level for me. There are all these things that are being ticked off and they come together in this way that I maybe I don't quite understand or there's an understanding going on inside of me that I don't quite know how to explain or and maybe it's going to, you know, Femen is going to actually come up at some point. Uh, I, I find that really engaging and interesting because it's those moments later on when you're not expecting it, when you're walking mm. down the sidewalk or something, that all of a sudden something from that story will, like a few pieces will click together. And maybe it's something you'll see. It's like, you know, one of those Eureka moments where, I don't know, you see some bricks in a series and it connects you back to that. It's, it's so random. But there's something about that several little lights going on like across a, a dark bay at night, across a landscape where you can't quite see what the shape of it is or what's across that, that, that water. But the more they go on and the more, the more you, you kind of cross toward them, uh, the, the clearer things become. But it's, it's a journey. It's not like you know, the writers are gonna necessarily lead you to that. Um, and I find the more time goes on, the more I read, the more I read weird fiction, that the more I enjoy that sort of thing. Uh, and also because it's something about real life you know real life does operate in more that way uh where there isn't always a nice wrapped up conclusion um well i don't know if you have any thoughts about that but that was just oh i have lots of thoughts about that <laughs> i mean oh i mean for, i mean well said i i i agree i agree with everything that you said and you you, you said it much more concisely than i can um look there's nothing wrong with what you call rounded endings which i think by that you meant like you know endings where they seem to come to an end point, not an end point. They have a conclusion where they feel wrapped up. Um, one of my instructors and author um, who I'm very fond of as well, Kelly Link, um, calls that sort of an ending, yeah, putting a bow on it. You know, perhaps it's like, you know, the enemy is defeated, um, the aim is achieved or not achieved, uh, and it feels like the story is over, concluded. And, you know, in, in our media, in our movies, we... Um, there's something to be said for that. We want, we want a feeling of satisfaction. We want to, we, we want feelings of resolution. Um, these are good things. These are things that entertain us that we like. Um, when you give us, when an author gives us or a story gives us the stories that go on that don't have that. All right. So some people are going to fall right off that cliff and are going to be like, that sucks. I did not like that. I did not engage with that. That hurt me. You know, okay. So the, the, right. There's something to be said for that, which is why I think in the mainstream, we do have that um, hero's journey structure or the three act structure. Um, but then there's, then there's, then there's the strange tale. Then there's the, the, the twilight zone. Then there's the, the stories that, uh, and perhaps this is more a hallmark of, of more um, in the literary end of things where, where stories don't wrap up neatly, and and one of the one of the reasons for that, or one observation on that, is like what you said. Yeah, it it feels more um, more like life. It has a verisimilitude for it. Yeah, for those of us who are who are after that, um, it could just feel more poignant. It could feel more scary, right? I mean, if like you said, oh wow, like suddenly these werewolves are things that maybe weren't scary to me because they weren't real. Like wow, now it's a different different chill because this could be real the way this was presented it ticked a different um it ticked a different um thing in in inside me there um 
so yeah, I think I think that's um, I think it's one of the things that fiction can do. Um, another author that I'm a big fan of, his name is Tim Powers. Um, he said um, he wasn't talking about weird fiction in general, but he just was talking about fiction. But this quote always stayed with me. He gave a speech and he was talking about what he thinks his fiction does or what fiction could do. And you know, to paraphrase very quickly, he talked about a chicken farm. Um, just this place uh, indoors, there's no windows, no natural sunlights, where generations upon generations and generations of chickens were raised without ever seeing the sun and without ever seeing a natural predator, in this case, a hawk or a chicken hawk. And he talked about an experiment where some experimenters, you know, they put like a fake sun or a light source and they ran on a, on a wire across their uh, a silhouette of a chicken hawk and it, it, it inspired terror. You know, the whole place you know, erupted in you know just chaos and he said oh, okay so there's something built in without getting into science there's just something built into our bones our instincts that these animals just knew that 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 silhouette is danger that silhouette is fear and he made some much more eloquent than i can say analogy about saying like that's our job as the the writer to do that on the written page um yeah one more, one more thing that you said, you said, uh, or I, I wanted to mention the original book where How to Stay, Af How to Stay Afloat Where Drowning Appeared in. You mentioned like, oh yeah, when, when you're done with the story, you'll see the lights or you'll see the bricks. And um, you weren't quite describing pareidolia, if, uh, but you were describing where you'll see something in there. Um, you know, the, the, the term pareidolia is where you look at, uh, I think you're looking at the human face, uh, the human mind wants to see patterns or faces. And uh, yeah, for fans of weird fiction, um, uh, Black Shuck uh, Books uh, put out a book called Pareidolia of Weird Fiction. And that's where the story uh, first appeared. So um, that's just something to mention as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, how about uh, if you read a little bit from that story for us? Oh, I'd be happy to, yeah. So. Um, I'll read a little bit from How to Stay Afloat When Drowning. And this is, um, yeah, it encompasses, I think, two, two of those quotes that you um, called out earlier on. And this is just a little self-contained notion. Um, if you haven't read the story yet, uh, the main character, what we know about him at this point is that he's just, uh, he's a guy who's afraid of, he uh, does not want to leave uh, sight of water. And yet he's on the eve of a potential fishing trip that he must go on. So this is just, his uh, little flashback, uh, giving some insight as to why he is feeling that way. The dock where I spent so much time with Nina isn't far from here. Salt air smells the same 10 years on and isn't easily forgotten. I try to conjure the feel of her hand against mine. I'm not sure which memories are real sensations and which are just fabrications dulled by the years. Wind rustling the seagrass brings a sense of vast open stretches of sand back to me. The night birds honking cry echoes over the water. The ocean's breeze has tussled Nina's black bob into a wild tangle, framing her sun-touched face. I can smell her last cigarette, though she swears she's quit. She leans in and rescues our melting ice cream cone with a well-timed lick, followed by a big sloppy smile that transforms her. 
she ceases, she ceases to be the depressed soul who thinks and talks so much about art school, but never paints. I no longer see the streetwise girl running away from school, from the city, from what she calls conformity and everything. But instead, she is an ethereal, sensual, carefree being here watching the waves and afternoon surfers with me. Me, the would-be surfer who's never stepped on a board, with the afternoon sun warming my shoulders through my t-shirt and her sticky hand around mine, I think maybe this is all life is. Pairing up and running away from whatever it is you're running away from together, like this. The end of the pier is crowded with people fishing, holding hands and wave watching like us. The break isn't so hot, but there are still surfers out there hoping the left will develop. Someone in the water is yelling. Nina and I push over to the railing to look with everyone else. A young man has hooked a thresher shark on a line. The panicked fish spins and spasms as it is hoisted from the waves. A half dozen people have their hands on the line helping bring it up. The shark swings and manages to smash itself into one of the concrete support pylons. The people pull and pull and bring it up all the way to the rail. A woman leans over and gets her arms around it. Someone holds her waist and pulls her in. The crowd grabs hold of the shark, lifts it over the rail, and drops it on the pier. It flops and twists, its open mouth revealing a maw of dangerous teeth and the steel hook that snared it protruding from its lower jaw. No one wants to go near it now. A widening circle of space forms around it as everyone backs up. The woman who first grabbed it emerges, brandishing a baseball bat. Her blow connects with the shark's side right under its dorsal fin. It flips, landing on the steel hook, driving it deeper. The woman slams the suffocating thing again. Then the mob is all over it. This isn't fishing. This isn't protecting anybody. Our ice cream splats onto a puddle of blood and salt water. The shark is beaten into an unrecognizable shape. I realize Nina has never seen tears in my eyes. In the chaos of kicks and bat swings and skin, and scales, it dawns on me we're drowning. We're drowning here. Let's go, Nina says. I'm with you. No, I mean it. I mean, let's really get out of here. Anywhere you want, I say. Anywhere at all. The silver setting reminds me of a wave curving around the small blue opal and two tiny diamond dots. The plan is to ask her to marry me at the lodge at night after we see our first fishing bat. Maybe I'll draw a bat while we're down here, Nina says, all the bouncing on the dreadful road making her voice vibrate funny. The awful bus ride doesn't dampen her spirit and she kisses me as we lug our bag from the bus stop to the shore. The roaring ocean and clean air are so welcome. We're warned by the two boatmen not to go in while we're waiting for all the passengers. After 10 minutes or so, they decide there are no other passengers. There's water in the bottom of the wooden boat. 
The older man pushes off the beach and jumps in. The boatman on the motor guns it as we crash through the wave line. The boat catches air and lands with a heavy thunk. The older boatman leisurely bails water with half a plastic jug. We motor to the estuary at the mouth of the river, which is the only way to the lodge. Swells lift and drop us. I don't like the look of the waves we're going to have to pass through, nor the way the boatmen are bickering in Spanish. It's rough, the younger boatman says to me. We may have to go back and try again tomorrow. But it's almost dark, I say. Where are we going to stay? Don't sleep on the beach, he says. The sandflies are not very nice. The men speak to each other in Spanish. We're gonna try, I ask. The boatman guns the engine. I grasp Nina's hand. The water in the bottom has soaked our packs. The older boatman is bailing in earnest now. A big swell lifts and drops us. We spin and spin and wind up with our port side facing land. The boatmen yell at each other as the boat is dragged along parallel to shore. Waves hit from all sides. The water fills up faster than the old boatman can bail. Can you swim? The boatman asks. What's happening? I ask. Kiss your wife and pray. The older boatman stops bailing and throws a small wooden crate overboard. Then a full jug of something, motor fuel maybe. Then a bag of oranges. He has fished out of the calf deep water. He grabs my pack and I stop him. We watch the jettison stuff spin away in the current. Large dark shapes are moving beneath the surface. I spot a lone dorsal fin heading towards the crate. Nina is perfectly calm, though she is squeezing my hand as hard as can be. Behind her, a big wave is coming up on us sideways. Her look of resignation inspires a burst of sadness and anger. The boatman guns the engine. The wave slams us. We're soaked, but somehow we don't go under and emerge from the blinding spray shooting towards the shore. The sweet woman who runs the lodge escorts us to our cabin, which is on a secluded rise nestled into tall palms at the edge of the rainforest. Through the big window taking up most of the far wall, we can see the water that almost dragged us down. There is an assortment of pots and pans, a hairdryer, a small electric radio, towels, a flashlight, and a can of bug spray lined up on the counter next to the sink in the kitchen area. A thick extension cord runs through the front window, bringing power. The shower runs on rainwater. We thank her and flop our bedraggled selves onto the big bed. When the woman leaves, Nina cries softly. We fall asleep in our soggy clothes, the distant sound of waves, no comfort. We wake in the night. The waves have quieted, the tide has receded. A coral reef and fish are visible in the clear water, their tropical colors illuminated by the full moon. The balcony outside the window is bigger than my apartment. A metal tub, a coal grill, and bucket are the only things on it. We peel ourselves out of our clothes, heat up buckets of water, and fill the metal tub. 
From our bath, we watch the fish in the water below and spot bats flying by, grabbing insects. I rub Nina's shoulders gently and whisper, we made it. This inspires a fresh round of sobs. What is it? What's wrong? I ask. People don't get it. Get what? They don't understand. The only thing that's real is how we treat each other. Nothing we do is going to be remembered. Nothing, I say, comforts her. After an hour, I decide to trek down the cliff to the main area to see if I can find ice cream or anything that might cheer her up. I return to the cabin and notice the big window is open and the power cord is running through to the balcony. Nina stopped sobbing. I don't like the low-pitched buzz coming from outside. Nina? She's motionless in the tub, her head's tilted back, staring at the sky with that same awful resignation that came over her on the boat. I'm confused at why the cord is out here until I see the submerged hair dryer. A blue arc jumps from Nina's bruised skin, joining the pink and orange bolts that crackle over the water every second or two. The awful sound is coming from the radio floating by her feet. The reek of ozone and burnt hair hits me and I understand that what she has done was no accident. I told myself a lot of nevers that night. Never leaving sight of land is the one I've kept. I must not have truly meant the rest. I spot the woman from the bar on the bend of the dark road up ahead. I walk faster and try to catch up. So we'll halt it there. Oh, it's a phenomenal story, uh, very well read. And, and I think as we've been talking about a perfect example of, of all the things we've been discussing here, uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I think there's another small theme that, well, it's a pretty massive theme, but uh, it's another mm -hmm. thing I, I picked out of your story that that specific section where they're in the boat uh, with the large dark shapes moving below the surface, it's another element of the story where you know, it reminds you that we're always close. And yeah. wonder, during this, the story, as I as I realize you know as you read what happens to nina if, if that was in her mind and the terror of that was too vast for her to uh to live with yeah yeah could definitely get that get that out of there from there yeah thank you for thank you for that i wanted to ask you uh just a couple more questions here daniel um sure one, one kind of changing gears uh since this is this collection came out in 2020 now you know, as it goes, typically collections aren't aren't generally written and published in the same year. Sometimes it happens, sometimes not. But uh, I'm wondering, what was your COVID writing schedule like during the lockdown of 2020? Did, did your writing time increase, decline? Uh, did it stay the same? And and do you feel that the pandemic has changed you in any way as a writer or influenced your work directly? Um. So in the year uh, in the year 2020 itself, in that calendar year. I don't believe I wrote a single new word. I, um, I, um, I don't really um, feel like a person who's writer's block or blocked. Um, I think I was. I mean, I worked on a lot of other different things during um, lockdown. 
But for whatever reason, the part of getting um, uh, getting those words out of the ether onto the page was not happening for me. And not even like I sat to try and did it. I was just going through mental, um, whatever mental <laughs> traps, paths of telling myself to not even do it. You know, I was um, um, working on edits, working on revisions, working on proposals, working on promotion, other things. But that um, was, not, was uh, not happening for me. I found that lifted on, I uh, believe election day was, was it November 6th? For whatever reason, when Biden was elected, a huge weight lifted off me and I think things shifted. Um, so um, still not sure what that means, but um, that's, that's how it, that's how it, it affected, affected me. Um, and then about, January 6th happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was not happy about that at all. But yeah, but for whatever reason, um, you know, I'm a very, I'm a very slow writer, but in I, the pandemic is, is still going on. We're in a different phase, but uh, I guess, yes, at, maybe it's that we need hope and maybe it was darkest before the dawn or, you know, the four years of the pandemic and of, you know, some of the things happening to our country were, were certainly weighing on me. And um, I guess when I had a little bit of hope or when things sh shifted, at least in my perception, um, I did feel energized. And already in 2021, um, I'm a slow writer, but I've written, uh, you know, I've written, submitted, in some cases even um, had accepted a, a bunch of stories already, which is an unusual pace for me. So um, I'll take it without having to understand it. Uh, I'll take it. Sure. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, my, my last question was, you, you kind of partly answered it there, is, is what's next for you? Uh, it sounds like you have some publications coming up. I'm not sure if there's anything you're able to disclose yeah. or anything that's, that's public out there that you want to talk about or what? what uh, yeah, it's a bunch of things. If given the opportunity, um, I'm happy that I'll be able to share. I'm the, the, the one that's biggest on my mind right now is um, coming out next summer, summer of 2022, um, my novel from Lev Press. Um, Servant of the Eighth Wind is going to be released. So I'm, um, it's on my mind right now. I'm finishing my final edits to get to my publisher. So I'm excited to, um, to be able to bring that story to people. Um, there's a recurring, uh, there's some recurring settings and recurring characters from my three short story collections that people might recognize. Um, one of them is um, uh, Nate, Nathan Ben. Gurian, uh, who, at least in Underworld Dreams, he's the character in between our Earth and their moon, sort of the supernatural uh, investigator of sorts. Um, so yeah, that's one project um, that I've been working on. Uh, I guess the other ones I'm allowed to talk about are, um, there's a book coming out, I believe it's also in 2022, it's called The Dark, The Dark Heart of the Wood. Um, it's from Oxygen Man Press, a small press, a micro press. It's edited by uh, Dwayne Pasich, and um, that's over at Oxygen Man Press. It's a story called Where the Jaguar King Lives in the Dark Heart of the Wood. And um, I think there's a fundraiser, a GoFundMe that's happening now uh, for those who are interested in that sort of thing. So um, those are two projects uh, that are on my mind right now. Well, that sounds wonderful. Uh, we we'll very much look forward to your novel in 2022 and uh, that, that collection as well. 
Daniel, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a, a really uh, illuminating and interesting discussion. And uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you and uh, getting introduced to your work. So thank you for being on the Night Parlor. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me on the Night Parlor. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much.